Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome. Um, welcome to CCF. My name is Natalie, and I am a staff person here. I'm so glad that you made it here this morning. Um, this semester, our sermon series is going over the book of Isaiah and a couple of the minor prophets, and then coupled with our student testimonies. But before we dive into Habakkuk this morning, um, I will introduce you to some of my family. Um, this is my family. Uh, to the left is my younger sister, Adela. She is a senior at Mizzou than myself. There is my mother, Denise, and my dad, Dale. They live in St. Louis, living the retired life. They care a lot about their yard. Um, <laughs> they can answer any questions about grass. Um, and then is my older sister, Elise, and she and her husband live in Kansas City. Um, Elise is a English as a second language teacher for a charter school district, and then my brother-in-law, Andrew, is an engineer. Um, I am a firm believer that family is not just the people of your, you know, immediate family, but also other people that make that up. And behind me are also my family, all of these girls with the exception of Sam. Sam's my childhood best friend, but all of us, we met here at CCF during our freshman week at YAW events, randomly. And we have thus been friends ever since. Um, so we have... Jocelyn, we'll start from the back and then go down. We have Jocelyn and then Caitlin, myself, then we have Allie, Jordan, Sam, nope, Lowe, then Sam, and then Leah could not come this year. We, we get together um, once a year for a long weekend and Leah was not able to come this past year, but she's here today, um, so that makes it all the best. Um, Moving forward, so we are going to explore the book of Habakkuk together this morning. Generally, the book does not have a lot of information regarding the author himself, nor a lot of context about the book other than what is written inside. Um, and since there's little information kind of about the time or the place, it is thought that the book is written in the late 7th century. Um, that means that the Assyrian Empire is in its decline and the Babylonians are about to invade. Um, so we'll start here. Habakkuk begins his book with the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This semester, reading through Habakkuk and Job with my small group, I have thought a lot about suffering and justice and lament. And here in the opening four verses, we see the author begin to work through the process of lament. He uses phrases like, how long, you will not hear, you will not save, why do you, phrases that seem familiar if you have read the Psalms 
ones that highlight grief and sorrow over the oppressive circumstances that Habakkuk and his people are experiencing. Habakkuk draws God's attentions to his complaint of injustice and God's seemingly lack of response to it and the strong emotions that he feels towards the events. And from what I'm learning, lament is more than just talking about sadness or the stages of grief. The author of the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, characterizes lament like this. Laments can be defined as a loud cry, howl, or expression of grief. In the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It is more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer and pain that leads to trust. It wrestles with the question. It wrestles with the struggles that surface and typically asks at least two questions. Where are you, God? If you love me, why is this happening? Sometimes these questions are asked by individuals. Other times they're asked by entire communities. Sometimes lament reflects upon the difficult circumstances in general, and sometimes because of what others have done or the sinful choices of God's people in particular. We might think that lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. Face between brokenness and God's mercy is where the lament is sung. Think of it as a transition between pain and promise. It is a path between heartbreak to hope. Habakkuk enters wrestling with his reality with God by lamenting and honestly over the lack of justice. And oftentimes when we hear the word justice, we think about justice in the courtroom meaning that justice includes fairness and doing the right thing. But here, the word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. And mishpat includes fairness and doing the right thing, but it also refers to something much larger. The Bible Project, thank you, Reed, um, goes into great length about this. But to kind of summarize that, justice in the Bible refers to the most disadvantaged people. So think the marginalized, the oppressed, the vulnerable, when they are supported and cared for. So this means that a group of people that is not able to equally flourish, their mishpat is being violated. And justice in this sense means that we make their problems our problems by making it our responsibility. Mishpat is referring to who God is and what he is doing. And seeing justice like this happen is an expression of God and what he cares about. So him working through and with us to provide justice. Here we see Habakkuk lamenting that justice is not happening, that the vulnerable, such as himself and his community, are not being taken care of. Habakkuk talks to God on behalf of the people rather than talking to the people on behalf of God. The book contains a back-and-forth dialogue between the prophet and God, and God chooses to not respond this time with silence. Instead, God responds with a shocking reply. He says he's going to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and God talks about how they will continue to destroy and oppress the people with their violence and strength. It's not quite the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. Imagine you're lamenting about the destruction of your people, and God's response is, yeah, I'm actually going to send more, and it's probably going to be worse. That reality is starkly different than the one that Habakkuk expects. He responds in disbelief. He repeats phrases of who God is back to God, almost to say, isn't this you? Isn't this who you are? Will, will you not be like this? And he deals honestly 
with his response, continuing to lament. His answers are, his answers are so defiant, or blah, blah, blah. his answers are so honest they can sound defiant in a similar vein to the one that we see that Jonah had, because he ends here with, I will sit here and, and wait for a response, a better response from you, and then I'll choose to respond. God graciously answers Habakkuk with this, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. God meets Habakkuk where he is at. God tells him to be patient and to wait for what he is doing will not be late. Even through horrible times, God proclaims that the righteous will live by his faith. The righteousness is a relational term of being in right relationship with those around you, including those who are marginalized. It is justice towards your community, and it's the action of relating rightly to the people in my life in the right way. So God reminds Habakkuk and the people that it takes faith for us to live in right relationship with those around us. As righteousness and justice are deeply tied, God continues with five woes. He says, God says, woe to those who acquire wealth at any cost through means like stealing and cheating, for it will not last. Woe to those who oppress others to protect themselves, for in the end it is yourself that you have sinned against and shamed. Woe to those who acquire power for themselves by enslaving and working people to death, for it is not your power but God's glory in the end that will reign. Woe to those who see pleasure as their ultimate hope, for instead of pleasure you will feel shame. And woe to the one who seeks control, for you will trust yourself, false gods, and idols, and in turn will receive lies and emptiness. The woes allude to the unjust ways of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, yet due to their vagueness, the woes could be applied to anyone in any generation. When we live in systems that work unjustly, they continue to marginalize others for our own personal gain. It's not something that only negatively affects the vulnerable. Rather, we see God saying there is a deep spiritual harm to us, our relationships, and ultimately to other people. After God speaks, we see a major shift in Habakkuk's response to God. Through the process of lament, Habakkuk is uniquely open and listening to God's response. He no longer presents with this attitude of why God. Instead, he speaks with this renewed confidence and trust and hope. Perhaps Habakkuk can recognize the ways in which Israel or himself treats the vulnerable in their own communities. Ultimately, the same way that the Babylonians treat others, or perhaps he has seen that God prevails despite the rise and fall of nations. As he praises God in both his power and glory and might, Habakkuk also recalls Israel's past. He recalls the events in which God has been faithful and just. Often, time, often these are times in which God uses those who have been righteous by faith, chosen choosing to make the vulnerable, vulnerable's problems their own. Habakkuk recalls when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. 
God uses Moses to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of Israel when Israel is enslaved and treated poorly, and through Moses' willingness and faithfulness to God and his people, God sends plagues towards the people of Egypt to free Israel. And when they escape into the Red Sea, God crushes the Egyptians on their horses as Israel escapes safely. Habakkuk recalls the flood in which God responds to evil and the injustices that are happening on earth, a time in which when God is faithful to Noah and ultimately to us through his promise of preserving creation and making all things new. Habakkuk recalls when God uses David, an unlikely person who cared about his oppressed people and stood up to a giant, their oppressor. He ends with a declaration of trust and hope. Regardless of what comes and what happens, knowing that devastation will come, Habakkuk can trust in God, who is both just and faithful. God uses his people as they choose to live by faith, to care for those who are vulnerable and need justice. We see in Habakkuk's examples, as we live faithfully to God, we play a part in the story of God's justice. We get to be a part of God, excuse me, we get to be a part of the work of God as he cares for those who are marginalized and oppressed. And part of us, part of helping us live faithful lives is remembering the examples before us who have also lived by faith. One of the, one such person for me is my friend Chris Battle. Chris and I met when we live, when I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, the summer of 2019, I was following the school calendar and had the summer off from my work. With working far fewer hours and most of the students from the campus ministry I volunteered at would be elsewhere for the summer and my other friends working their full-time jobs, I was looking for a way to spend my time. Chris and I both lived in a downtown East Knoxville, an urban part of the city that had beautiful historical homes like the one I got to live in um, that was predominantly in a community of color with mixed incomes, but primarily low income. What I learned from Chris was that our neighborhood was considered to be in a food desert. A food desert is an area that has limited access to affordable and nutritious food. The USDA states that areas where at least one third of the residents live at a poverty level and are more than one mile away from the grocery store or a farmer's market is considered a food desert. Within our community, grocery stores were difficult to access. While we had many fast food restaurants and dollar store generals and corner convenience stores, these stores provided limited access to nutritious food like produce. Rather, they served food with little to no nutritional value to the diet of overly processed foods. Grocery stores in the area that did have produce um, would mark up their prices. So that meant that the same grocery store chain across town that would sell the same item for much less. This forces communities to pay more for less when purchasing nutritional food, especially if they have limited transportation to go across town to access different grocery stores. So for instance, cookout, which is like a favorite fast food restaurant in our area, they, you could purchase a tray, which has an entree and two sides and a drink. And an entree at this fast food restaurant is, or the sides at this fast food restaurant are also other entrees. So I could get a hamburger and chicken fingers and a corn dog with a milkshake for my drink 
all for $5. And so often families would go to cookout and buy a tray for their family of three to four. Um, and that was more equitable for them than buying the one $5 vegetable at their grocery store. Due to these conditions, areas that are food deserts tend to lead, lead to a high incidence of morbidity, cancer, diabetes, and other health-related problems. Chris, when he learned this information at the time, was a pastor at the local church, and as he wrestled with this information about our area, he began praying and lamenting about this issue. He began to feel a strong call to do something. It began by creating a community garden at his church and encouraging other pastors in the area to do the same. As he continued to lament and wrestle, he felt the call to be a farmer. He felt that your zip code shouldn't determine the affordability or your ability to affordable and accessible food, and he saw that the answer was God's people participating in the gospel and heard God tell him to feed them. And as a pastor, he felt God telling him that instead of asking people to come to his church, that he should go to the people. So from this calling, he created Battlefield Farms, an organization and urban farm whose mission is to transform the community's relationship to land and food in East Knoxville's underserved communities by working to end food insecurity by giving community members access to fresh food. The summer of 2019, he had acquired a little bit larger of land in my neighborhood, which was in between the highways and the abandoned mills. We spent the summer weeding, watering, harvesting, and tending the crops that he had planted within the field and the greenhouse. The crops we harvested, Chris would either sell at local farmer markets, but more often would give away, to free, give away free for those in our community. As I worked alongside Chris a few mornings a week, I learned that Chris was learning as he went. He had never gardened before, let alone farmed, and he had always lived in a city. Yet he saw how the access to food was affecting his community, both their health and their budgets, and limiting the other opportunities for them because their basic needs weren't being met. He saw that part of his community was being marginalized and had faith to make their problems his problems. He stepped out in faith to where he felt the Lord calling him to, and it was scary and hard. He had to lean upon the help of others who had more experience farming and from the volunteers that would help tend the crops. Since I have left Knoxville, Chris has partnered with different organizations in Knoxville, created different gardens, gained a different area to farm, and has acquired a bus to transport his produce back to the East Knox community. I look at what has happened because Chris saw people in his community being marginalized and lamented over this and began to make their problem his problem. Lament keeps us tethered to the process of living a life of faith. It keeps us tethered to recognizing the moments where we should make someone else's problem our problem within our communities because of where they are in their current position, where they might need uplifting and empowering those who circumstantially cannot do it solely. When we give ourselves the eyes to see the vulnerable, those in our communities who might be physically, mentally, emotionally, racially, financially vulnerable or marginalized, we begin to participate in the kingdom of God that is here now. There is a temptation to ignore it, 
to ignore the injustices that we see around us. Yet we see from the book of Habakkuk and God's responses that the ignorance of those things leads to harm and harm to those around us and to ourselves. Lament brings us to a place of worship, to a place where we can wait faithfully. And as we wait faithfully, we remember the times in which God has been faithful and just to us and others. As we are faithful, we act righteously because of the way that God uses lament to work on us. I'll pray for us, and the worship team can come up. Lord, I, I thank you that you are a God who can handle our deep cries and our deep questions, that you choose to care about the people that we are around. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see those who are also vulnerable and marginalized, that we would participate in doing your justice, Lord, here on earth. And would you help us live faithfully in that task, Lord, and participate in that. May we continue to see how you are working in and through us and around us, Lord, and for your purposes and for your glory, and that we may return um, to you in praise and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>